There is a, uh, most of you have heard of the long-running Broadway show, Fiddler on the Roof. It's been revived many times. It is the story of a Jewish family living in Russia during the final years of the Tsar. And the family and their village, um, they're experiencing a lot of change. The family in particular. The patriarch of the clan, Tevya, he begins the whole show with a song that is a salute, a pain to the village traditions. And what happens during the production is that those traditions start to topple as his daughters decide they want to marry for love. This gets Tevya thinking. Because Tevya's marriage, like everybody else in the village for generations, his marriage was arranged. So he asked his wife, Golda. He said, Golda, do you love me? She's flummoxed by the question. So they toss this question back and forth between the two of them through the whole song. And then finally she says, do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? And after this admission, which is mutual, the two of them conclude, it doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. Neither Golda nor Tevya pin their love for one another to dream fulfillment or physical attraction or heart stirrings or intellectual compatibility. Their love is based on shared survival of a hard scrabble existence. For a quarter of a century, they did it together, and it was all done in accordance with tradition. Now, in the scripture reading for this morning, Paul asks Philemon to make a sacrifice on, as he says, the basis of love. A love presumably understood by Philemon, who was a Colossian, and his errant servant, Onesimus. Philemon, we come to understand, is a recent convert to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. Onesimus' conversion comes later. And when he encounters Paul in Rome after fleeing Philemon's household, Paul's request to Philemon is one of those threshold moments when a believer has to learn to walk in the light against cultural norms rather than just basking in the light. Philemon can be found in the Bibles under your seats on page 967. I'm going to read from verses 8 through 22. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a while, for a little while, was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord." So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, 
that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Let's pray. God, our Father, your children gather before you to seek your heart. It is your will that we be united in spirit, one with another. Fill us with willingness to make the sacrifices that reconciliation requires, with humility to be vulnerable when we would rather throw up walls, and with the resolve to attain the unity that love demands, the unity for which our Lord prayed before he gave himself up. From this brief and sometimes overlooked epistle, renew our minds to remember that our relationships are your business and the most powerful expressions of the gospel as we await our Lord's Jesus' return. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the love between Tevye and Golda was discovered on a macro level. If you took the entire 25 years of their marriage, as Golda did, sure, that has to be love. If, on the other hand, you isolated each day and tried to discover affection, you might only see difficulties and challenges, exhaustion, and frustration. Of course, in their traditional culture, Golda and Tevye didn't have a lot of choices. They had to stick it out. What Paul ma- when Paul makes his plea to Philemon, by contrast, he is asking him, his protege, to make the right choice in the moment and do so on the basis of love. Paul is well positioned to do this. Why? Well, on the one hand, he was a Pharisee, right? And a Hebrew of Hebrews. He understood the pull of law and custom. And on the other hand, he endured a lot of injustices, a lot of oppression, multiple injustices at the hands of his persecutors. Now, once again, Onesimus was a slave who had run away from Philemon's household. Given Paul's language, we might infer that he stole, he stole from his master along the way, or else Roman slavery being what it was, the very act of fleeing might have, been see, might have been seen as a form of theft. You see, slavery in the ancient world, brutal, cruel, and unfair as it was, it differed from the slavery we might be more familiar with in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries in Spain, Britain, or Europe, or America, for example. Sometimes, in ancient Rome, slaves were kidnapped and sold by pirates. That's true, but more often... They were prisoners of war, and even more frequently, they were debtors, or the children of debtors, paying off obligations through bonded servitude. Another huge difference in the ancient slavery compared to the more modern slavery is that more often than not, slaves looked the same as their masters. Most of them looked like all the other citizens of Rome. Running away and blending into this world was much easier. So much so that the orator Cicero, believe it or not, said that slaves should wear their own uniforms. They should have separate clothing from everybody else. That way we can identify them. Now, this idea was shot down in the Roman Senate. And it's interesting why it was shot down. It was shot down because there were so many slaves, nearly a third to a half of the population, that the senators thought if they realize how many they are, they're going to revolt against us with confidence. So forget that. Forget the whole school uniform idea. So, 
it wasn't easy for them, even though it was different than modern slavery. Slaves were branded, they were flogged, they were killed with little consequence for the owners. By the same token, they were routinely freed when debts were paid or after years of loyal service. In many cases, freed slaves acquired Roman citizenship for good behavior. Paul's exhortation to Colossian slaves urged a deeper motivation, though, than that. He said in Colossians 3, 23, 24, he said, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Are these difficult verses for you to swallow? They make you a little bit uncomfortable. If you're skeptical of the Christian faith, or maybe you're a Christian but you're just put off by the lack of explicit condemnation of slavery in the New Testament, you're in historic company. There were Jews of Jesus' day whom he disappointed in the same manner. The Roman rod of oppression was hard against Judea. It pressed hard against Judea, and they seized at the arrogance and the cruelty of their Roman masters, this foreign power whom they didn't know. They looked forward to a Messiah who would free them politically through a violent conquest. To their dismay, the man many said was the Messiah, told them to look inward, deal with their own arrogance, their own corruption. He told them to be humble, to treat treat each other better. He told them to follow him, even though he had hardly anything bad to say about Rome that he did not right every wrong, or at least point out every wrong, was galling to them, to those who viewed life primarily as just a power struggle. Before Pilate, our Lord declared, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Well, that declaration was fine with Pilate, the Roman governor, right? But it likely would have disgusted the zealots and the Jewish nationalists who hated Rome and its paganism. Spiritual regeneration was all well and good to them, but death to the Roman occupiers was the first order of justice. This same zeal prevents many today from understanding the gospel and receiving the word in faith. We pride ourselves on our social responsibility and our civic virtue. We demand that those instincts be gratified. And we want to see those things be fulfilled before we're going to entertain any petitions from the Lord in our hearts. But Jesus, the great physician, he understood causes and symptoms better than we do. In dethroning, for instance, the Pharisees' dietary idols, he told his disciples that corruption does not go from the outside in. He said in Matthew 15:19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, out of the heart. If slavery is a burr in your saddle, recognize that Jesus works from the innermost concentric circle outward. Putting a Band-Aid on an infected wound might cover up an ugly laceration, but it doesn't bring healing. Only deep, comprehensive purification will restore the tissue, or in this case, the human spirit, to health and restore relationships to integrity. That's the business of the gospel. Everything else is gravy. So with this in mind, we can more easily see that the moral depravity of Rome is often the cultural backdrop 
to the regeneration of souls, whether it's regeneration of one or of thousands. Why is this important? Because in this epistle, Philemon, the slaveholder, is the injured party by law and by custom. The slaveholder is the victim of a tort. He's a victim of a wrong, an injustice. Yet it's for his sanctification, as well as the slave Onesimus' welfare, that Paul makes his appeal. And in this petition, he doesn't argue over the ethics of indentured service. He goes right for the deep tissue of a redeemed heart, asking Philemon to yield on three related matters for the sake of the one who yielded everything. The first is power. He's asking Philemon to yield power. Right out of the gate, Paul reminds Philemon, who has the ecclesiastical authority in that relationship. He said in verses 8 and 9, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul sets the example for the slaveholder. As an apostle, he doesn't have to make a case for Onesimus. If Philemon was a believer and submitted to the rule of Christ's apostles, he would have to accept the command. No questions asked. Where would that leave him, though? Well, likely Philemon would remain ignorant of the nature of the love on which Peter bases his plea. So Paul sets, uh, Paul, excuse me, Paul bases his plea. So Paul sets his power on a shelf, and he reasons with the man. It's not a pattern which, with which Paul is unfamiliar. Our Lord, and Paul's Lord, and Philemon's Lord, and Onesimus' Lord, he created the template as the apostle himself explained to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. He said, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. In a very real sense, Christ became Onesimus to reconcile Philemon to God, a just and holy God. On earth, Jesus got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. In Gethsemane, his heart troubled him, but he refrained from calling down the legions of angels at his disposal to rescue him. On the cross, he suffered the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood without resistance until it was finished. Paul understood the power behind yielding the power. Although he was not an original disciple, he doubtless knew that knew what happened after the mother of James and John did a little politicking on her son's behalf. This is uh, recounted from Matthew chapter 20. It says, And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Slaves cannot command. They cannot command anything, but they can petition. And Paul took that route. Because reconciliation among brothers, just like reconciliation with God, comes by a change of heart and not by asserting our place in the worldly pecking order. The next thing he wanted uh, uh, Philemon to yield is property. Remember, 
Paul offered restitution. He said, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. This missionary tent maker is willing to restore assets to a man, it would appear, is a man, that's a man of means, considerable means. One of my uh, favorite novelists is a man named Arthur Shale. He's an Australian novelist, but he specializes in the, the uh, period of uh, Republican and Imperial Rome. And he estimates, on average, that a young adult male slave sold at 6,252 excuse me. Uh, it's actually over $150,000 in t- contemporary American currency. Now, I'm no expert on the ancient Roman economy. That's a lot of tents. But once again, Jesus serves as his model. God the Son. God the Son owned the cattle on a thousand hills. But the Son of Man couldn't even find a place to rest his head. Paul may not have heard that repeated, but he got the gist of it. And he told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God incarnate, a tradesman in his earthly life, he gave up his business. He surrendered it in order to reconcile sinners to his father. In his final hours on this planet, even the clothes on Jesus' back were given up. Heaven was his throne, the earth was his footstool, Isaiah tells us. But Jesus affirms in John 17 that he is not tethered to this world. So Paul's offer to to Philemon is an unqualified submission to his Lord's example. Did you notice something, though, in his words to Philemon? Did you notice his non-mentioned mention? Philemon owes Paul his very self, his very life. Had Paul not presented the gospel to him, he would be lost. This is a challenge to Philemon. Basically, he's saying, what's worth more, Philemon, your $150,000 investment or eternity? Gain the whole world, lose your own soul. I don't think it would be wrong in suspecting that more than a few of us in this sanctuary this morning are facing similar choices. And it's not exclusively tangible property. It's not exclusively real estate or, or cash or valuables. Maybe it's your self-image. Maybe that's the non-negotiable asset for you. Or pri- you pride yourself on your intelligence or your rectitude or your social status or your political stances or your good works or your relationships. All of these can be good. All of these are good. But to cling to them is to hobble yourself in your growth toward conforming to Jesus' likeness. Obedience is always going to put those things, those things that are very dear to us, in its crosshairs. Finally, uh, Paul asked Philemon to yield on prerogative. Now, prerogative is akin to both power and property. Like power, it's owned by some and employed against others. Like property, prerogatives are ours to use according to our pleasure. When we talk about prerogatives, we really mean rights but rights wouldn't fit my alliteration, so we'll call it prerogative, okay? But even so, it's not exactly the same as rights. It, it, prerogatives are, are conventional. They're, a matter, they're, 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 they're almost situational. 
Paul stood firm on absolutes, but he was always willing to bend on non-essential matters of cultural preference. One example is his firm stance against the Judaizers, his famous confrontation with the Jerusalem Council uh, that uh, was at the time insisting on circumcision for everyone. He said in Acts chapter 15 to the council, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That same Paul, however, in the very next chapter, consents to Timothy's circumcision. Is he fickle? No. Timothy was actually Jewish by maternity, though his father was Greek. His circumcision, not only appropriate, but it enhanced his street cred with the Jews that he was going to preach to. In this case, circumcision was done for ministry's sake and not in order to attain salvation. Custom and tradition and the prerogatives they convey, they have their place, but they should not, Paul tells us, be overarching principles to live by. It goes to the heart of Paul's overture to Philemon. He says, I'm sending you, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. What he's telling him is is Philemon, the heart of a regenerated Philemon, if truly regenerate, is no longer going to look at his prodigal slave as a slave but primarily as a brother. Yes, law and custom and tradition give Philemon the right to make an example of Onesimus, a ruthless example of Onesimus. But the love of Christ through the Holy Spirit dictates not only mercy, but fraternity, brotherly love, warm embrace. Whatever Philemon's prerogatives, love demanded forgiveness and reconciliation. He must lay his rights aside as an injured party. Real or imagined, whatever those rights are, he must lay them aside. This same Paul, again, who told the Colossian slaves to work hard and be obedient to their masters. The same Paul told the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If there's a corollary to this truth, it is implicit in this epistle to Philemon. And the corollary is this. In Christ Jesus, there are no victims and there are no criminals. Let that sink in. There are no victims in Christ Jesus and there are no criminals. Criminals have repented of their evil doings. Victims have put aside their prerogatives. Without this selfless surrender, there is no real reconciliation. Yeah, sure, there's uneasy truces, there's fleeting alliances, Convenient friendships, maybe, but nothing lasting or permanent, nothing edifying or refreshing. Paul told the slave master that heeding his counsel would, quote, refresh my heart in Christ. If the Apostle Paul, full of the Spirit, needed refreshment, how much more do those sitting around you this morning need it? Refreshment that comes from the sacrificial love that our Savior set the example for. Let me give you a case in point 
I want to show you a picture of two best friends, BFFs. One's named Teddy and one's named Will. They were the same age, about, and they believed the same things, approximately. Theodore Roosevelt, on the left, was president of the United States for nearly eight years. After a storied career, he had been a reformer, a rancher, a war hero, and a governor of New York. William Howard Taft, on the right, he was, he was Roosevelt's faithful lieutenant, and he represented the president as the governor of the uh, Philippine territory at the time, and later he served him as secretary of war. These two men were as close as any in political life around the turn of the 20th century. Even their sons were best friends. They formed a group called the White House Gang, where they'd romp and play around the White House grounds. When Teddy decided it was time to step down from the presidency, he could think of no better replacement than Will. But the two had very different temperaments. Where Roosevelt was impatient, Taft was long-suffering. When Taft was judicious, Roosevelt was impetuous. Taft was just fine with anonymity. President Roosevelt, I like this quote, as his daughter Alice recalled him, she said he wanted to be the baby at every christening, the bride at every wedding, and the corpse at every funeral. (laughs) That sounds about right. It should have shocked no one then that when President, President Taft began to Uh, uh, to serve, he disappointed his patron and predecessor with his caution and his self-effacing style. Soon enough, Roosevelt lobbyists became anti-Taft, and they petitioned the former president to take back the White House. Roosevelt, being Roosevelt, could not resist the invite, and he challenged Taft for their party's nomination in 1912. He began publicly denouncing Taft as a fathead, a puzzle wit, and dumber than a guinea pig. Now, Taft was a lawyer and a judge. He never really liked being president. He really didn't. But he was deeply offended by his former friend's power grab, uh, to the point of tears, really. And usually amiable, he told journalists, all of which really preferred Teddy Roosevelt, he told them, even a cornered rat will fight. And so in the end, the two men split the Republican vote in the next election, and Woodrow Wilson sailed into office. In the ensuing years... Neither man had much good to say to or about each other. Then one day, Roosevelt fell ill. It was the result of lingering malaria that he had contracted during an expedition on the Amazon. That's the river, not the retailer. (laughs) Having suffered from a bout of malaria years earlier when Taft was in the Philippines, Taft sent his old friend, on again, off again, ex-friend, old friend, a sympathetic note. And Roosevelt responded in kind. And then the correspondence began to take off between the two men. And then one day, by accident, they ran into each other at a hotel restaurant in Chicago. And they greeted each other warmly. And they sat down at the table and were enthusiastically talking with each other. Not only were they reminiscing, they were talking about current affairs, and they were looking toward the future. And everybody around them was so inspired The packed restaurant, everybody stood up and applauded as the two men took bows in front of these diners. They were appreciative of seeing this reconciliation happen right in front of their eyes. Well, to be sure, both men still retained ambitions. Teddy to be president again. Will wanted to get on the Supreme Court. But each of them let go. Let go of resentment. They let go of entitlement and suspicion. And when they let go, they let the chips fall fell where they may. By the way, Taft made it to the Supreme Court as Chief Justice. 
Teddy Roosevelt, he was the odds-on favorite for the presidency in 1920. But he passed away in 1919. It was a private funeral for him at Oyster Bay. And seating himself in the back of the little church, former president William Howard Taft was soon invited by Roosevelt's son to sit with the family in the front. Because, as he said, you're a dear personal friend. After the interment, Taft loitered at graveside while the others departed. There, he wept. Again, he wept. Having shed his right to be angry, he was then able to shed tears of sorrow. You know, like Tevye and Golda, these two presidents discovered that they had a larger macro relationship, an enduring collaborative friendship that survived a single episode of political pettiness and disappointment. In the same way, Paul asks Philemon to consider eternity. Beyond the, caref- the relatively short master-slave affiliation, consider eternity. Onesimus is now a brother, now and forever. Paul ends his plea with a veiled warning. He says, I'm, I'm going to come back. Get a room for me. I'm going to come back and see how you did. See how you responded. And that's entirely appropriate. That's why we have church, right? Accountability. Accountability helps us to love one another more honestly. If you're a Christian, do you appreciate the infinite nature of your relationships, of your connection to your brothers and sisters? Or are you unconsciously assuming that we will all be separated by death and consigned each to our separate mansions? I suggest that eternal life brings eternal love from our Father in heaven and from all of our spiritual siblings. Reconciliation is our charge. It's commanded to show the world who we are. Jesus commands us in John 13 to love one another lest we blend in, lest we become indistinguishable from the rest of the world. If you have cause to be angry, don't marinate in it. Go to the object of your wrath and make things right. At home, at work, at school, most of all here in church. We owe it to our Savior. He yielded power, property, and prerogative in serving as the once-for-all sacrifice that reconciles sinners to our pure and holy God. Let's pray. Eternal, immutable God of grace, we ask that your Holy Spirit convict us of those unprofitable things to which we cling, that Jesus' blood cleanse us of the sins that foul us, and that your word ever inform us of your perfect will and faultless character. Help us to love one another as your Son commanded, and to yield to one another even when culture tells us that we have the right of way. For these blessings, and infinitely more, We thank you in advance, and we do so in the excellent name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.